today. We're going to talk about the gift of tongues and interpretation. Now, let me preface uh, what I'm going to say today with what I said similarly last week. Um, The purpose, the reason God gave spiritual gifts to the church, okay, and spiritual gifts, what are they? If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and he has given you an ability, a gift. It's not your gift. It's the church's gift. But he's given it through you to the church. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up others in the church. Now, whenever you talk about spiritual gifts, there are easy gifts to talk about. Gift of encouragement, gift of administration, gift of teaching. Those are are, uh, very simple gifts to talk about. Then there are the controversial gifts. Last week we talked about prophecy. And today we're going to talk about tongues and interpretation. Now, people have strong passions about the, uh, the gifts of uh, what they believe about the gift of prophecy and tongues and interpretation. Um, so there is a, uh, a possibility that when this gift is, is taught on, uh, that people are not going to line up 100% with what I say or with, with one another. And uh, keep in mind why God gave us spiritual gifts. To build one another up, not to tear one another down. Now, there's probably a, a, uh, a good probability that you will not agree 100% with what I have to say uh, this morning. But I want you to, before you have an emotional reaction, I want you to listen carefully to the whole picture here. Because there's a, it's like a puzzle. You've got to fit all the scripture together, not just this scripture or that scripture. You've got to fit it all together. And then you also have to factor in experience. Okay? You also have to factor in church history. Uh, so there's a lot of pieces that all need to fit together. And what I want to present to you is what I have discovered over the years as I've studied this as a way that fits all the pieces together. But please try to listen to the whole thing before you let your emotions uh, get in the way. Okay? Can you also covenant with me to not let this become a divisive issue? Now, if, uh, if we disagree over how you're saved, that's a divisive issue worth dying for. This is not a, a divisive issue worth, uh, worth creating division in the church. Okay? Um, now, um, by the way, the reason people can get emotional is they can think that there's either their position or another position. When it comes to this view, there are all kinds of different views. There are those who believe that the gift of tongues has ceased. There are those who believe it continues. There are those who believe that it continues, but there's a lot of wackiness going on with it. There are those who believe everybody should speak in tongues. There are those who believe that if you don't speak in in tongues, you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. There are those who believe that you should speak in tongues, but it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There are those who come out of a Pentecostal background who are disgusted with how they were raised. There are those who come out of a Pentecostal background who are very happy with the way they were raised, and their goal is to convert every church they're in to that position. So there's all kinds of different views um, when it comes to tongues. So the first thing we need to do is read the relevant scripture. 
there are four instances of tongue speaking in the book of Acts. By the way, you say, what are you talking about? There's another position. Another position is people sitting here, what are you talking about? I have never heard of tongues. What are you talking about? Well, um, here's the definition. Speaking in tongues is the gift of being able to praise God in a language not known by the speaker. It's a miraculous gift where you are able to praise God in a language that you yourself don't even know. The gift of interpretation then would be somebody listening to somebody who speaks in tongues, interpreting it and translating it into the known language so everybody can understand what was just said. Okay? So, where do we read about this? Well, we first read about it in Acts chapter 2. There are four instances of tongue speaking that goes on in the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Who's the they? 120 followers of Christ in the upper room praying, waiting for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? So they're praying. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they go out into the streets of Jerusalem, praising God, speaking in different languages, and those who hear them say this, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Let me point out two things. One, um, here it's actual known human languages. This is not um, unintelligible gibberish. This is known languages, and the people who hear them uh, hear it in their own language. Okay, so that's point number one. This is known languages. Point number two, a lot of people say we need to get back to Pentecost where everybody spoke in tongues. Nothing is said of the 3,000 who believe that they speak in tongues, only the 120. So 4% of the people believe, but not everybody believes on the day of Pentecost. Okay, keep that in mind. All right, now next we read in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Uh, But Philip goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel. They believe, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit. So it says this. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So Peter and John are kind of like delegates to go check this out. Do these guys really believe? Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues, but I think we can piece together that the, uh, there was some kind of visible manifestation that they had received the Holy Spirit. What happened in Jerusalem was they spoke in tongues. I, I have no problem saying they probably spoke in tongues uh, here in Samaria. Then we go, remember Jesus said the gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost regions of the world. Next time we read about tongues is in Acts chapter 10. 
with Gentiles. Peter is up on the roof and he falls into a trance and he has this view of unclean animals coming down from heaven. And God says, eat them. He goes, no, I'm kosher. I don't eat unclean meat. And God does it a second time, then a third time. Then Peter goes, oh, I get it. This isn't about animals. This is about those unclean Gentiles. I'm supposed to go spread the gospel to ooh, disgusting Gentiles. Meanwhile, God is preparing some Gentiles, a guy by the name of Cornelius in his household. An angel appears to him, and the angel says, a guy named Peter's going to show up. Believe him. So God gets these two together. Peter preaches the gospel, and it says, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, the Jews, right, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So now we got tongues in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the first Gentiles. We don't read about tongues anywhere else in the book of Acts, except one more place, Acts chapter 19. There are some followers of John the Baptist, who had been baptized by John the Baptist, and Paul starts talking with them, and um, he realizes that, in essence, they're followers of John the Baptist, but um, they've... Uh, he talked about Jesus, and they kind of know about Jesus, but they don't really know the full gospel, and they don't know about the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens here. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about, there were about 12 men in all. So those are the four instances of tongue speaking in the book of Acts. Now, the only other place we read about it is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 12 and 14, he spends, 14, he spends a lot of time talking about tongues. But here, uh, he lists tongues as a gift. Uh, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge. And we go down uh, here. Uh, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay? So, those are the relevant scripture. Now, let me talk about the different positions, theological positions out there. There are cessationists. Cessationists say that we read about tongues in the Bible... Then, very early in church history, they ceased. God no longer gives the gift of speaking in tongues. Okay? Then there are continuationists who say, yeah, we have to admit, tongues died out early in church history, but they've started up again. And those are continuationists. Now, what am I? I am a cautious continuationist. A cautious continuationist. Why am I a continuationist? Let me, I'll give you two reasons. Number one, simply because I don't find the arguments for cessationism to be airtight. I understand them. In fact, Most of the people I read and I follow are cessationists. I understand what they're saying. I follow the arguments 
But there's a difference between an argument that makes sense, is good, and an argument that's airtight. Okay? You can give argumentation that leads in a certain direction, but airtight, no. I, I don't think it's airtight. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It means it's just not airtight. That's one reason I am a cautious continuationist. But let me give you a second reason. I know too many godly, Bible-believing Christians who speak in tongues, and I don't think they're faking it. Right? Don't want to make you nervous, but people sitting next to you may have the gift of tongues. <gasps> it's not like Ebola. You won't die. Okay? So, so yes, I am, I am arguing from experience that I know godly Christians who have the gift of speaking in tongues... Um, and I don't think they're loony. I don't think they're demon-possessed. I, th- I think they have the gift. Okay? Now, let me say this. I am a cautious continuationist. Let me tell you why I'm cautious. Because I also know a lot of people who have had the experience of going to a church where they manipulated them into speaking unintelligible syllables. Okay? My own lovely wife had an experience where she went to a church, and they weren't going to let her leave until she said something. And she said something. Yeah, she wanted to get out of there before midnight, right? And... Some syllables came out of her mouth, but it wasn't the gift. Now, there were people who left it who I'm sure had the same thing, and they thought it was the gift. Okay? Um, Let me say this. The biblical gift of tongues is the gift of speaking intelligible language, not unintelligible syllables. Okay? Let me... Let me show that this is true in Acts and in Corinthians. In Acts, remember, on the day of Pentecost, the people hearing, the people speaking in tongues said, and now, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They didn't even need translators that day because people could hear them speaking in their own language. This was not just syllables. This was, these were actual languages. Now, in Corinthians, some people might say, well, what if the tongues are not known human languages, but they are, it's an angelic language or a divine language that doesn't correspond to any known human language? Is that a possibility? I, I think it could be a possibility, but even that assumes that the language that is being spoken is an intelligible language. Why? Because it is translated. Translation assumes an intelligible language. Norman Geisler says this, the fact that the tongues of which Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians 
could be interpreted shows that it was a meaningful language. Otherwise, it would not be an interpretation, but a creation of meaning. So the gift of interpretation supports the fact that tongues were a real language that could be translated for the benefit of all by this special gift of interpretation. So, um, what's the point here? Those who elevate experience over Scripture, they say, I don't care what Scripture says. I know that I have the gift of tongues, but it's just unintelligible syllables. In fact, one guy uh, who had this experience, he said that what came out of his mouth was, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda. (laughs) And he thought that was the gift of tongues, and uh, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda. Um, But now, if he says, should have bought a Honda, over and over again, and one Sunday somebody says, oh, the interpretation is God is going to bring great blessing upon this church. And then the next Sunday, he says, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda. And then the person says, God is going to pour out judgment upon the Norwegians. Wait a minute. Something's going on wrong there because that is, that is a miracle of interpretation. No, there is a language and an interpretation of that language if the same unintelligible syllables are said week after week after week and then a new message comes out, something's going wrong here. That's not what's going on in Corinthians or in Acts. Okay? Now, um, let me get back to the line here. There are cessationists and continuationists. Now, let me fill in some more positions. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are some continuationists who not only believe that tongues exist today, but they believe it is the sign that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You've received a fuller experience with the Holy Spirit. So they are very passionate Not only that they speak in tongues, but that you should speak in tongues too. Because they want you to have that fuller experience. I mean, they are almost just as passionate with this issue as they are with evangelism. First, let's passionately get people saved. And now that you're saved, we want you to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So you need to speak in tongues. So there are those who are baptism of the Holy Spirit continuationists. And then there are non-baptism of the Holy Spirit continuationists. Um, Non-baptism of the Holy Spirit continuationists would say this. While the gift may exist today, it is not the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this non-baptism of the Holy Spirit continuationism, (laughs) am I losing anybody? Sounds like going to the doctor, right? Um, Non-baptism of the Holy Spirit continuationism. That is the position of Wayne Grudem, who wrote the Big Blue Systematic Theology. I believe he's right. Okay. By the way, his chapter on the baptism of the Holy Spirit is up on our website. Before you jump to a conclusion... Read it. Because I think what Grudem does, 
is he pieces together all the pieces, not just arguing from experience. He pieces it all together and makes sense of it. Now, let me tell you why I think it's important to figure this out and why I think the non-baptism of the Holy Spirit continuation is position is the biblical position. Um, and experientially, it's important that we get this right. Okay? Number one, if you believe that speaking in tongues is the sign that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and if you don't speak in tongues, that's the sign that you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, we now have two classes of Christians. The spirit-filled and the non-spirit-filled. The haves and the the have-nots. Boy, that leads to a lot of guilt, pride, and learned behavior. Right? If you don't speak in tongues, let's face it, you are not as spirit-filled as those who do. Wow, I must be a second-class Christian then. Or, hey, I do speak in tongues, I must be more spiritual than the other person. Now, they wouldn't say that, people who speak in tongues, but, you know, that can creep in. And it can also lead to a lot of, I want that gift, so I fit in to a lot of learned behavior. Okay? That's one reason I think it's important that we get this right. Second reason, now think this through. If speaking in tongues is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then nobody has been baptized in the Holy Spirit for 1,800 years. Because it is well known that throughout church history, even Pentecostals will tell you this, that the gift of tongues did cease for about 1,800 years. Then, with the Azusa Street movement, 1901, out in California, people started speaking in tongues again, and the Pentecostal movement then has spread. But you have to say then that Spurgeon was not spirit-filled, Calvin was not spirit-filled, Luther was not spirit-filled, Wesley was not spirit-filled, Augustine was not spirit-filled, and those who speak in tongues are more spirit-filled than the giants of the faith. Do you really want to say that? Okay. Now, here's what I want to do. In the time that remains, I want to show you biblically that speaking in tongues is not the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The theological view that says speaking in tongues is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit starts by making a fundamental interpretive mistake. They build their case on the book of Acts, not on Paul's teaching. Okay? They, for, they, they don't understand the basic hermeneutical, hermeneutical, hermeneutical <laughs> interpretive rule that description is not prescription. The book of Acts is a history book. Now, there are things in it that we are to follow. But there are also things in it that were one-time unique historical events. For example, I always like to give the illustration 
of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip preaches the gospel to him. They uh, stop by a pond, and Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And then, anybody remember what happens to Philip? He vanishes. He disappears. And then he shows up in another town. Now, if we're going to use the same hermeneutic, we should say, there it is. The only valid way to baptize is you baptize in a pond, and then the baptizer has to disappear. We could start a cult. The cult of the vanishing evangelist. Well, it's right there in Scripture. Well, yes, it's in Scripture, but here's the question. Is everything in a historical book in Scripture for all time, or might there be some uniqueness to it? So, here's the rule. Interpret description in light of clear prescription. Interpret historical passages in light of teaching passages. So we must start in Corinthians. Now, in Corinthians, Paul says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So they're all spirit baptized. All the Corinthians are spirit baptized. Do they all speak in tongues? We all right here? 1 Corinthians 12. Are all apostles? What's the answer? All right, let's do it louder. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? (laughs) No. They were all spirit baptized. They don't all speak in tongues. That's it. That's the prescriptive teaching. What about Acts? How do you deal with the four instances in Acts? Easy. It's explained this way. God is validating to the prejudiced Jewish believers that, yes, the dreaded Samaritans and even the dreaded Gentiles can be included in the people of God. It's not just Jews anymore. It's Samaritans who get the same sign that you got on the day of Pentecost And it's Gentiles who got the same sign when the gospel initially breaks through. Okay? This is a unique historical spreading of the gospel and God validating to those prejudiced Jewish apostles that the gospel has spread. In fact, this is clearly the interpretation that goes on with Cornelius. When... um, When... uh, Peter goes to Cornelius and preaches the gospel. They believe. They get baptized. He goes back to Jerusalem, and they're not too happy with Peter. Here's the response. Picture this. Peter goes, hey, guys, I went to Gentiles, disgusting, filthy Gentiles. I preached the gospel. They believe they're part of us now. Isn't that great? And here's the response. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party 
criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So their reaction is not great. Their reaction is, what is wrong with you? We're Jews. They're Gentiles. They don't get the gospel. So he goes through the whole story. I was up on the roof, and God gave me this vision. And meanwhile, he's working with, uh, with uh, Cornelius and his family over here with an angel. And he gets us together, and I preached the gospel, and they spoke in tongues. Conclusion. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Okay? They got the same sign in Corneliusville that we got in Jerusalemville. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift... To them, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I guess if they spoke in tongues, same way we spoke in tongues, I guess they're in. So here's the question. Is this a pattern for all time, or is this a unique God saying, they're not going to believe it unless I validate it? Okay, Same thing goes on in Samaria. They believe, but God delays the manifestation of the, of the Holy Spirit until John and Peter show up. They lay hands on them. Then they're given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Why? To validate that the gospel has gone to the dirty Samaritans. Now, there's one last case. And, and by the way, so here, here's what's going on. Remember the, the, uh, the table of contents of the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Samaria, then to the outermost regions of the world. Starts in Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, goes to the Gentiles. As each frontier gets the gospel, they speak in tongues. But after that, we don't read about it. Except for one more case. I call this the time warp case. This is where uh, Paul runs into uh, followers of John the Baptist. They didn't have the full picture. He explains the full picture, and then they speak in tongues. What's going on here? I call this a time warp because, in essence, what they were... They were Old Testament saints living in the New Testament era. They just hadn't gotten the message yet. So, in essence, they were believers, kind of believers. they, they They were Old Testament believers living in the New Testament. And when the full gospel was explained, then God said, yes, they're in too. But that is such a unique situation that I don't think we can base any pattern on that. Okay? So... Uh, Put it all together, I think it is better to understand the historical book of Acts and these occurrences as God validating the spread of the gospel. Okay? Do all speak in tongues? No. We're all baptized in the Spirit? Yes. It is not. The, The gift of tongues is no more unique than the gift of administration. Okay? Now, Here's why this is important. I think once the connection between speaking in tongues 
and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is removed, all the argumentation can cease. It's no longer one class versus another class, the haves versus the have-nots. It's just, hey, if you speak in tongues, that's great. It's once you say, you better speak in tongues or you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, now that creates the tension. Okay? Now, a call for tolerance for two groups of people. One, to those who don't speak in tongues. Tongue speaking may, may uh, be something you're not familiar with, but unfamiliarity doesn't mean it's wrong. Some are quick to write everybody off as crazy, faking it, demon-possessed. Okay. What about the option that God just gave somebody the gift of speaking in tongues? Okay. Right. Then uh, to those who do speak in tongues, realize that this gift has been relatively rare or non-existent for 1,800 years of church history. And it's unfamiliar to a lot of people today. So an attitude of patience and love must be extended to those who are unfamiliar with it. We don't shun those who have the gift. We don't shun those who don't have the gift. Now, listen to this. It's important to read the worship environment in which you find yourself to determine whether the use of that gift would be edifying or divisive. Okay? And what I mean by that is, okay, for example, Elizabeth was raised in a Presbyterian church. And I remember showing up one Sunday without a suit and tie on. Boy, did I stand out. And everybody stood there with their hymnals and sang. There was none of this going on here. Okay, I almost wanted to just run down the aisle and just shake them up a little bit, you know? <laughs> they, I think they had a sniper up in the balcony for anybody who raised their hand. You know? Um, you know what? It's not my place to change their style. So I stood there and sang out of the hymnal. Okay? Now, um, when I pastored up in Wisconsin, we had a church very similar to ours. And the rule was this. Um, worship the Lord in freedom, but don't let your freedom of worship distract other people's freedom of worship. Okay, so we had some who would raise their hands when they worshiped, close their eyes. We had others who would stand there and chew gum. Shouldn't smack your gum, though. Right? Um, we had others who, who, were, who would show emotion, others who would just sing the songs. Okay, but then there was a, a family, and it was not just a family, but an extended family, so they brought the whole bus and they came from a Pentecostal background. And they were convinced that the only way to sing every song was with your hands raised. Okay, now, I don't have a problem with that. They had a problem that everybody else didn't do it that way. And all of a sudden, they started sitting in the front row. Hands fully raised, blocking the screen. Okay? So, I had to go on a little pastoral visit. 
with one of my elders, by the way, who spoke in tongues. Okay? But we were both in agreement that they were distracting people. And I said, his name was Har, Har. We're going to go. We're going to kindly explain that they're distracting. They're going to be offended. They're going to tell everybody that we kicked them out or uh, we rebuked them for worshiping with their hands up. Didn't do that. We went. We sat down. We said, listen, you're welcome to worship, but don't distract others. Could you sit further back? Left the church. Got wind that, yes, we went and we were rude. and we No, we weren't. We were saying spiritual gifts build up the church. If your use of them is tearing down the church, then you're making your own private gift more important than the unity of the body and the edification of the church. So... Any church you go into, I think uh, it's not your job to change it into the environment that you think it should be. Follow the lead that the elders and the pastors have set for the environment. Okay? Now, one last thing. Um, so, Pastor, are you saying that Nobody should seek, seek after more of the Holy Spirit. No, I'm not saying that. Okay? While I think it boils down to vocabulary, I think it's important to not say, you need to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I do think it's important to say, in fact, Paul commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I didn't add it. Okay. Um, Ephesians 5.18. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled is in the present tense. In the Greek, the present tense is the verb of continual action. In other words, continue seeking to be filled with more and more of the Spirit. So if somebody says, hey, have you had a second experience with the Holy Spirit? I would hope your answer would be, no, I haven't just had a second, but I've had a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. It, doesn't, it may or may not involve speaking in tongues, but I am to continually seek after the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me close with what Wayne Grudem writes here. Wayne Grudem believes tongues exist today. He doesn't believe it's a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he's very diplomatic in what he says here. How should we understand contemporary experience? What then has happened to people who say they've experienced a baptism of the Holy Spirit that has brought great blessing to their lives? We must understand first what is commonly taught about the need to prepare for baptism in the Holy Spirit. Very often, people will be taught that they should first confess all known sins, repent of any remaining sin, trust Christ to forgive those sins, commit every area of their lives to the Lord's service, yield themselves fully to him, and believe that Christ is going to empower them in a way and equip them with new gifts for ministry. Then after that preparation, they're encouraged to ask Jesus in prayer to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. But what does all this preparation do? It's a guaranteed prescription for significant growth in the Christian life. 
Such confession, repentance, renewed commitment, and heightened faith, faith and expectation, if they are genuine, can only bring positive results in a person's life. If any Christian is sincere in these steps of preparation to receive baptism in the Holy Spirit, there will certainly be growth in sanctification and deeper fellowship with God. In addition to that, we may expect that at uh, many of these times, the Holy Spirit will graciously bring a measure of the additional fullness and empowering that sincere Christians are seeking. Even though their theological understanding and vocabulary may be imperfect in the asking, if this happens, they may well realize increased power for ministry and growth in spiritual gifts as well. Let's pray.